This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, I interviewed Josh, and we talk all about flipping, finding deals, some wholesaling, and what he's doing today to pour his money into for that long-term residual income that most of us on here are looking for. So before all that, though, here's today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is make sure you don't under-rehab a property or over-rehab a property. A good flipper or rehabber is not the person that makes the prettiest home or spends the most on renovations. A good flipper knows exactly what to improve and how much to spend on improvements to get the maximum value out of the home. Whether that's he's going to refinance it, whether he or she is going to sell it to an owner-occupant, you want to make sure that you are not over-rehabbing or under-rehabbing so you look at neighborhood comps, you know, flip comps in that area, what kind of finishes it has, and then you build your budget, your scope of work, and assemble your team accordingly, according to that budget and that scope of work. So don't get caught on either end of those two extremes. Make sure you're walking that fine line between under rehabbing and over rehabbing. So today's guest, I think you're going to enjoy it. He is a wonderful wealth of information and he's all about thinking long-term and not just short-term. And that's what I like about Josh. So here we go. Welcome to the show, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? You bet. I'm doing fantastic. Uh, Can you give the audience a short introduction about yourself and what you do in real estate? Yeah, Josh Gordakovsky. Um, here in Los Angeles, and I primarily do ground up real estate development. I do a little bit of uh, single family and uh, smaller multifamily flipping as well. And I started my uh, my company four and a half years ago. Been doing it full time ever since, and uh, slowly building up my development and rental portfolio here in Los Angeles. Perfect. Yeah, you're uh, you're not the first person on the. On the podcast that I've had from Los Angeles, I'm sure it's a very hot market, a unique market out there. Can you talk about what you mean by development? I mean, are you the way I picture it is you're literally taking the land and then you're building on it? Is that a fair assumption, or what does that mean, development? Yeah, for the most part, um, most of the projects that I've been doing, I've been uh, purchasing single-family homes that are on lots that are zoned for more units. So, you know, they'll end up usually being houses that are in pretty crummy condition. So we'll end up just demolishing them entirely and then using the lot for duplex, triplex or fourplex developments, which we'll build literally from the foundation up. Wow. That's an interesting strategy. You know, a lot of people just take existing stuff and make it good again, but you're actually sometimes tearing the existing building down and starting from scratch. How do you think that helps you in terms of, I mean, I know it's probably more expensive to go through that process, but do you think you have a higher like profit potential exit strategy because you're doing everything new? Um, No, I mean, it it really depends, right? Like how you're going to analyze your projects. I I have several friends in, in the industry that 
you know, most of what they do is flipping. And when you look on it, when you look at it from an annualized cash on cash return, they're probably manufacturing a better return doing that because they're in and out very quick. So even though their dollars are, are maybe less, they're, they're churning much faster. Um, for me, I know that long-term development is where I want to be. Um, I don't know if I'm going to stay in this, you know, smaller multifamily space forever. Uh, maybe I'll get into some larger multifamily developments in the future. And most of the stuff that I end up building, I want to keep for myself for, for the company's portfolio. So that's a reason that I'm doing it. Um, obviously also doing it for profitability, not doing it uh, because I, you know, um, love the, the materials so much and the process of it, which I do, but it's more obviously for profitability. Um, but that's, that's why I'm doing it. It's more of a long-term view. Absolutely. Well, today's show is all about uh, development and, and flipping homes, uh, which I know you have experience in that. Um, so I'm just curious, explain at a high level, um, your process. I mean, from acquisition, finding the deal to analyzing it, to managing the job. I mean, I know it's a tall task and we'll, we'll, unpack that at each step, but let's first zone in on finding the deal. You're in a hot market. So, and you're looking for very distressed properties. It sounds like, what does that acquisition phase look like for you? Yeah. I mean, Los Angeles is an insane market. I'm sure there's a lot of markets like that right now, but I mean, specifically this year, it's been absolutely bananas. Um, yeah, most of my acquisitions, uh, will come from one of two routes, which is either, uh, relationships with brokers and agents, or uh, some of the deals I've been able to source myself, just neighbors of job sites, um, some grassroots marketing, mailers, letters, door knocking, stuff like that. Um, so whenever I get an opportunity, yes, uh, it does end up being usually a distressed home. Sometimes it's not a distressed home. Sometimes it's somebody just marketing you know, a house, thinking that it's worth X, when really, when you look at it, for what the land is worth, for what you can build there, it may be worth why. So that's happened as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm finding these lots. I'm, um, I'm analyzing them based on the zoning of the lot and the size of the lot, you know, what we can put on there, uh, two units, three units, four units. Um, now in Los Angeles, I don't know uh, in other markets if, if this is becoming a thing, but in Los Angeles, there's now uh, ADUs, uh, additional dwelling units, which have been, um, uh, allowed to be put onto properties since 2017. And now with multifamily, they allow you to do that as well. So now there's an extra component that you have to analyze um, and see if you can squeeze on there. But um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're figuring out based on our price per foot building wise, what, you know, what the entire project cost will be, what it's going to be uh, worth on the back end. And then, like I said, most of these projects uh, I would like to keep if possible. So you know, what the refi looks like at the end of the project versus a sale. Um, and then the rents will be collecting so on and so forth. And if I can get to a, nowadays it's a little bit lower, but let's say a 12 to 20% return, then most of the time I'll end up pushing forward to, to doing the deal. Yeah. 12 to 20% is a, a good return for that. Um, so when, when you're hunting for these deals, are you mainly looking for like you said, houses that you can just like tear down or, um, cause in my market, like if I come across a lead and they're just trying to sell the land, I'm like, that's not attractive to me. I want to have a house that's already there. You know, I don't want to yeah. 
a vacant city lot on the rough side of town, like that's worth a couple thousand bucks for me. But for you, it may be a gold mine. So explain how, how, what that looks like. um, If you come across a lead, that's just like a vacant city lot or just a a total teardown. Yeah. I mean, it just, I think it really dwells down to my competition on the lot. Right. So if, if it's just a vacant lot, then it's, going to be all other developers looking at it with the same eye that I'm looking at it with mostly most of the time. Um, you know, so then it's just going to be a bidding war unless it's some kind of large lot where you can do some, you know, larger multi-story multifamily building, which I don't do. So then, you know, it might be priced out of my range, but as far as the single family homes, yeah, I mean, I could be competing against somebody, who is either an end user, you know, if it's not in too terrible of a shape, even if the lot is for me, like, you know, there may be an end user who be, may be romantic about it and be willing to pay more than I can uh, when I'm looking at the profitability of it. Um, I may be looking at a flipper, you know, like like yourself and others that don't care about what the land is zoned. They're just, they're just going in it to do a quick rehab in and out. So they also may be willing to pay a little bit more than me. Um, and then, you know, there may be other developers like me who are just looking at the lot. So, with those, as opposed to vacant land, I think there's a lot more eyes on it, and it's it's uh, about you know what the end value is going to end up being and who's willing to pay more for it. So um, it it is different, but um, it's just you know over the years putting in the time, looking at so many deals that you can kind of look at these various uh, properties, whether it's a vacant lot or not, and 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 figuring out what you can do there. Yeah, there's a term in real estate, highest and best use, and I'm sure you use right. that to determine what's the best purpose for this uh, land that you have. So you said you do grassroots marketing. You know, you're on the you're on the ground um, doing direct mail or cold calling or door knocking. Um, what has been the most effective strategy for that in a super hot market that you're in right now? The grassroots specifically. Um, yeah, like what what's yielded the the biggest return in such a competitive market there? It's really door knocking. Um, you know, the cold calling, um, I haven't actually, actually, no, I take that back. I've, I've purchased one deal off cold calling. Cold calling absolutely works. I come from a sales background, so I know cold calling works. Um, but specifically with me, the, the strategy that's worth the most is door knocking, just being face to face with the homeowner, showing them that you're a real person. And, um, you know, that if you have some developments in the area that helps, I kind of, t- you know, mention some certain streets and maybe they've seen the development dri- driven by it, walked by it. Um, so that's, that's worked the best for me. It's just so time consuming. Um, I was able to do it a lot more in the beginning when I didn't have several other projects to manage and properties to manage. Um, and now it's, it's very, very difficult to find time to, to do that. But um, in my experience, uh, that has yielded the most deals. Yeah. And eventually you probably hire somebody to do that for you as well. You know, have you kind of explored that avenue? Yeah. I've been considering it more and more as my time keeps dwindling uh, down. And um, so now, yeah, I'm considering hiring an assistant. I I might hire somebody to do the, to do the door knocking maybe on the weekends or part-time. So um, I, I probably will start exploring that more and more towards the end of the year. Sure. Well, I know most people, probably listening to this are really not interested in development right now because it's probably yeah. not, it's not really an entry level strategy, is it? You know, it depends. I didn't come into the game uh, knowing that I was going to do that. I kind of just stumbled upon it. Um, 
I've mentioned in other podcasts, I have a mentor of mine who um, owns several multifamily uh, properties here in Los Angeles, and he's been developing. So I kind of stumbled into it through him. Um, but no, I wouldn't say it's you know very common for people to to come into it um, as a novice and just start developing ground up. I will say though that my argument against that is I didn't have a construction eye as I'm sure most people don't when they start. And for me, it was way more daunting to walk into a property and try to figure out my budget when I didn't understand one, what kind of scope of work I needed two what, you know, materials costs. And there were just so many components I didn't really understand. Whereas with new construction, I kind of knew off a set of plans exactly what I needed. You know what I mean? Um, so that was my argument against it, but yeah, it's a little more, um, little more entailed, a little more, uh, difficult of a process. Yeah. So, but I think what we're talking about today will apply to somebody just getting started flipping or, yep. and that's kind of what this is geared towards. So for that person, um, just getting started, like how do they develop that construction? eye? like you mentioned, um, should they walk through their first few properties of the contractor? Should they, you know, any resources on that that they should look into? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just going through it. Um, every single project I learned more and more and, um, going through inspections, uh, you know, the inspectors not passing you and telling you what you did wrong and, um, you know, making certain mistakes that, uh, for me at least haven't been fatal yet. So those little mistakes really are the best teachers. Um, when I first got started, my very first flip, I actually didn't run the project myself. Uh, I ended, I was working with, with two guys who had experience and I had an agreement with them that if I found a project that they would be running the project and help put together the capital and that I would have a small equity split, but really I was just going to fit in wherever I could get it and help however I can, but they were going to run the show. So maybe that's not what everybody wants to hear, but for me, I, you know, like I said, didn't have that. I didn't have the capital resources so for me, that was a way where I could still make some money on the deal, but still be involved rather than wholesaling it. Um, so I was involved in that deal. I learned a tremendous amount from that first project, and that gave me just enough confidence to do the second project um, on my own. So um, that's that's one way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think wholesaling can um, help you develop you know, your construction eye, but really you're not going to master it until you get in there and actually take on a project yourself and start overseeing yeah. things and developing your scope of work for sure. So how, how do you decide what to keep or flip? Because you said your main goal obviously is to build a portfolio for the long-term wealth. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what to keep or flip? I try to keep everything. Um, unless it's a, if it's a single family house, you know, I'm going in, with the intention of flipping it, um, ones that I'm not demolishing and building units on the ones that I'm, you know, remodeling those I'm, I'm flipping. Um, but as far as, as the units, you know, those, I try to keep everything I've sold. One, I've sold, uh, one fourplex that I built, um, just because I raised money from a group of investors and they all wanted to sell from the get go. So I, I started that project with the intention of selling, but, uh, but every single flip, uh, single family house, uh, I will end up selling to generate more capital to move to the next project. Okay. So you're trying to sell those smaller deals to roll mm -hmm. them into larger deals. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what is your go-to strategy for 
analyzing deals because as we know as investors it's all, it's all about the numbers and so how do you um analyze the deal on a development when you're literally taking everything from the ground up um i have a general you know price per foot that i'm building at now with materials costing more in this past year i've had to change that number slightly and it obviously hasn't been perfect i've been uh you know adjusting that number as i'm going through uh current projects right now but when i'm when i'm analyzing i'm i'm punching in obviously what we're buying it for and and any closing costs i'm putting in our entire construction budget whether we're um borrowing money for the construction or not i've had the luxury of being able to build some projects entirely out of cash and not spend any money on on any construction loans and so factoring that into the equation whether there's any debt or not um, and then, like I said, I mean, looking at comps, figuring out what these uh, multifamily buildings are trading for on the market, and even though they're technically considered residential, I'm still looking at cap rates. I'm still looking at uh, the rental income that these other properties are generating and, and factoring that into the, the end value of what it might be worth. And I have a pretty good relationship with with um, inst- institutional lender that's doing all my my cash out refis. So I already kind of know what rate I'm going to get and what LTV I'm going to be at once the project is over. And then, like I said, I mean, I'm punching all, I have a pro forma that I've built over the years, just, you know, nothing super fancy, just over Excel. And over the years been, it started super ugly. Then it's got a little prettier and prettier over time. Um, so I, I try to, I try to do everything as computer like as possible. I don't want to spend a, a tremendous amount of time analyzing every deal. Otherwise I wouldn't have time to do anything else. So, um, you know, I built this, this template where I'm just punching in all these numbers. And then if everything looks good from a, from a bird's eye view, then I'll dive deeper into all the nitty gritty details. Yeah. And I think you have a unique advantage, you know, you know, exactly what it costs to maybe not exactly, but you know what it costs to build. Whereas somebody who's rehabbing a house that's not experienced, it might be 35 a square foot. It might be a 55 square foot based on unforeseen things. So that's why I like to get inspections on anything I'm like going to keep just because Mm -hmm. I want to know, um, what a good, what a good rehab cost will be. And then I obviously get multiple bids because I just don't want to get caught, um, in the, you know, analysis phase where I underestimate rehabs. It's a big thing that you could get stuck on is underestimating Mm -hmm. rehab. Um, and then also, can you talk about, ARV. So after repair value, um, cause another one trap is to underestimate rehab. The other trap is to overestimate your ARV. Yeah. Are you strictly going off sold comps or are you like, well, I think it'll be worth a 5% more in three months. Like, are you doing that kind of a thing like speculative or are you strictly going off sold comps? I am 95% of the time going to be on the conservative end of things. If things have traded for this amount of money, I'm going to say that that's, you know, assuming everything is else is the same, I'm going to assume that's where I'm going to trade at. I'm most of the time not going to say, oh, you know, they got this, therefore the market's going to keep ascending and now I'm going to get five, 10% more. Um, I will say though, now specifically in Los Angeles, the uh, supply has been so, so can, so compressed that demand is just through the roof. And people are paying these crazy numbers for finished product. It's hard to see that happening over the past six months and not say, okay, you know, I probably will get a little bit more than this comp. 
Um, but I tried to steer clear of that if possible. Um, given the fact that it's, it's becoming harder and harder to find deals right now, I am guilty of doing that on a few deals. Um, but I try to be conservative. Yeah. It's hard not to stretch the numbers in this market and kind of waver from the tried and true, like rules of thumb because you're like, yeah, it could be worth this much more though. And I could, I know I could get this, but. And it's hard and you're being romantic about it because yep. you know, you're putting so much time and effort into this and you want, you want to do deals and yep. it's hard to not uh, romanticize and, and persuade yourself to do the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially if you want that next deal so bad and the sellers, the, you know, their expectations go up and up because they, they know the market's hot too. So yeah. you want to give them the best offer. So yeah, we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of crunched on both sides, but we have to stay true to the fundamentals and not get romanticized about it. Like you said. Yep. So another thing I want to talk about is like how you chose this niche. Um, how can others, myself included, you know, get out of the analysis paralysis phase and find their niche. Cause I struggled with this for a while and now I've, I've settled down into a niche, but how did you kind of cut through that noise and find your niche in real estate? Uh, everybody, you know, obviously, like you said, has their own path and, and uh, we'll figure out what works best for them, what they're most interested in. For me, when I first got into real estate, um, I was just pretty black and white about it. Uh, you know, I didn't know where retail was going to go. Um, you know, the warehouse and in, industrial space, I wasn't so interested in that. Um, and then obviously there are several other asset classes in real estate. But one thing that I was just very frank about was everybody's always going to need a place to live, you know, no matter what. So for me, that was the very first thing that I decided on was I'm going to go into multifamily or residential because people always need a place uh, to live. So that was my first step. And then, like I said a little bit earlier, I was introduced to my my now mentor at the time when I was getting started, and he is in the multifamily space here in Los Angeles. So that was the path of least resistance for me. I had somebody who was willing to teach me and was already very successful and accumulated 25 years of knowledge in the space. So uh, for me, it was a pretty easy decision to, to, you know, get into this specific uh, asset class and niche. Yeah. So you had that mentor that kind of helped you. And then obviously your own likes and dislikes. I don't like this, but I do like this. And then it finally, you finally settled on your strategy right now. Why do you think having as a mentor is important for, for reasons like that, they help you like get clarity and focus. Yeah, I mean, um, the obvious is is the knowledge. You know, if you have somebody that's experienced and been through it, you can learn from their mistakes. They've already kind of paved their own path and and learned certain things, made certain mistakes that you don't have to make or that you can learn from. Um, so that's first and foremost. Um, I mean, there's just little nuances on the day to day, whether it's analyzing a deal or going through an escrow um, or construction and, you know, certain rules and regulations dealing with attorneys and operating agreements. I mean, there's all these little things, insurance, there's all these little things that, you know, you obviously learn as you go through it, whether you make a mistake or not, you'll just learn by going through it. But if you have somebody that's already been doing it um, you know, you have the luxury of not having to, yeah, absolutely. They can yeah. really cut your learning curve. 
Um, I, I place a high value on mentors. Um, if, if it's not going to be in person, at least do a mastermind group. I think that's mm-hmm. been really helpful for my business. It's allowed me to, uh, take off and not feel like I'm burdening one specific person because I'm in a group of like 200 other investors. So right. it, it, for me, it's a better, it's better suited for me than, you know, meeting somebody for lunch once a week. I just feel more comfortable with the mastermind group. So if you're not feeling like, Hey, I want, if you're feeling like I don't want to burden this person for lunch, um, once a week and then become my <laughs> mentor, um, first off, you're not really burdening them as long as you're bringing them some sort of value and you're open to, to being taught. But then I would encourage you to look into mastermind groups. Those can be really helpful as well. And in my yeah. opinion, add a little bit more value there. Well, yeah, and also for the growth too, just real quick before yes. you move to the next step, I was going to say, I, I have a mastermind group of uh, five other friends of mine that are in the industry and we all do different things in real estate here in Los Angeles, but we meet every quarter and, you know, we kind of grill each other on our business plan, what we've been doing, what we've been successful with, what we've been failing at. So that's been, that's been great as well outside of just the, you know, the experienced mentors, you have a, a group of people that are also going through it. So I would recommend doing that too. Yeah, good point. So I know you're big on this topic, learning versus earning. What does that mean and how has that manifested in your business? Yeah, I mean, I also mentioned this earlier. We're all in this business to make money, right? So I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But I will say that for me, when I first got started, I had this idea that I was going to make a certain amount of money by a certain point. And once I reached that point, I wasn't making that certain kind of money. It was hard to not get discouraged. I still, I still kept going. I still was busting my butt and doing everything I was doing, but it's hard to, you know, keep going and not be discouraged when you're, you, when you have these expectations of what you're, what you're going to make. So my mindset has, has shifted to, um, you know, I really want to focus on learning as much as I can rather than focusing on just the dollars of what I'm making, because uh, that, that education that I'm gaining from every single deal, from helping my mentor with his deals, um, from just being involved in many, in, in as many scenarios as possible. I mean, I've helped friends of mine lease their units. I have been involved with larger developers and helping them find deals and analyze for them just to make a few bucks on the side when I got started. So just learning as much as I can because that in itself will help me make more money down the road. So having just more of a long-term view as opposed to just a short-term, how much money do I have in my pocket right now? Yeah, there is definitely a balance. I think the more you can learn, the better. I mean, even if that information isn't going to help you in the short term, like you're going to remember it or draw back on it in the long term. So for example, if you're starting a company right now, start reading books on hiring employees. Cause even though you're not like ready for that step, like you will be one day and it's better to be prepared than not um, learning versus earning. But we do have to also prioritize earning, you know, well, yeah, but, of course. tons of books talk about that, you know, profit first and, and so forth. We have to prioritize earning, but what Josh is saying, I believe is learn while you earn, you know, um, cause everything's going to be a learning lesson. And there's so many things that we can't even talk, talk about in this podcast that like are going to come up in your investing business, but um, you're just going to have to deal with those as they come draw on your mentors 
and um, glean upon your past lessons. Um, Cause it's just yeah. too, like, there's so many things that are going to come up and be obstacles that you're just going to have to push through as a real estate investor. Of course. And this, this may be a better example, just a quick actual real life example of what I've been talking about with learning versus earning is, um, you know, I, I, I help project manage a few of my mentors development projects. Um, you know, when I first got started, I didn't have that luxury because I didn't know anything. So, you know, he didn't really trust me to do it. Now that I've had a handful of deals under my belt, he lets me run his projects. And I've had certain individuals in my life ask me, why are you wasting your time managing his projects when you have no equity in those projects? Because I'm not getting paid for them. And my response to that is, Yes, but with every project, I learn something new, which allows me to take that to my project, become a better developer, a better investor. So it's helping me in the long run. And that's what I really mean by it. It's like a real life, you know, almost master's program, PhD program, whatever you want to call it. You're going to school. You're paying to go to school. You're not getting paid to go to school. So for me, that's the way I'm looking at it is every project. I'm just learning more and more and more. Well, uh, I know this episode was a lot about um, flipping. So I want to go back to that, that aspect real quick before we wrap up the show. But I mean, if, if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who wants to get started in the flipping atmosphere, um, just taking, you know, a distressed asset and, and making it new again, what, what piece of advice would that be for that newbie? Yeah, you touched on it earlier. Don't get into analysis paralysis and trying to be perfect about everything. It's not going to go perfect. There's, I bet you if you talk to 100 investors, every single one of them will tell you that their first deal did not go perfectly. Um, so just accept that. And if you're willing, uh, if you're wanting to get into this business, um, you got to just be willing to, you know, do your homework, um, analyze as, uh, you know, as much as you can without going into analysis paralysis. And then just biting down and going into it and whether, you know, you made less money than you anticipated or you broke even, or even if you lost a few bucks on the deal, that's not the entire point on your first deal. The point is just doing your first deal, the law of the first deal, because that will get you to your second one. So um, I think that's the most important thing for people getting started and uh, that are nervous to jump in. Yeah, you got to get that first deal. And I feel like a lot of questions go away for people yes. after that first deal. Um, and it doesn't mean you won't make a mistake again, but you'll learn so much. Um, for me, I, I took on a very extensive rehab on a single family home. And mm -hmm. now like I look at everything from the lens of that. So I'm like, oh, watch out for that. Ooh, don't let that person take advantage of you. And it's so mm -hmm. valuable. Like you could listen to a thousand of these podcasts. It wouldn't matter until you get that first deal. So dive in and, you know, door knock or, or send out mailers and find that first deal, just heck find it on the MLS. Um, and even if you lose some money, um, it's going to be worth it, but I'm not advocating that you should lose money. Do a, <laughs> do a bunch of analysis before you get into it. Like read the books, listen to the podcast, analyze like a hundred deals, but don't just sit on the fence. It's the worst thing you can do for sure. I agree. All right, Josh. Well, um, this next section of our show is called the triple threat. We ask the same three questions to folks. Uh, what is the app tool or resource that has been the biggest game changer for your business? That's question one. Um, there's a lot of different project management 
tools out there. Mine is specifically not a project management tool, but um, I really like this this company app called Todoist. Um, they got a mobile app and they have a, a web-based app as well. And I pretty much organize my entire life on there. Um, so I have every single project, all the tasks that I have for every single project and, um, you know, everything else that's pertaining to my business. I'm, I'm an organization freak. So, um, you know, I really like their layout and it, it integrates well with my calendar. So Todoist is, uh, a big one for me. Yeah. Finding a system like that's key because when you have so many projects going on, you can forget things like, Oh, I forgot to set up utilities for that. Oh, forgot to put insurance on that. If I don't write it down, I forget everything. So I, I jot down every single little thing I got to do. Yeah. Question two, what's been the biggest learning lesson in the last year? And why do you think that happened? Um, the biggest learning lesson has been, um, I, uh, just harping on the patience, you know, um, Again, I, every year it seems like I'm expecting that, you know, the next couple of years I'm going to accelerate up to this, 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 this point where I have accelerated uh, tremendously over the past few years, but really just understanding that this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, and that, you know, with every deal I'm, I'm getting better and better and, and understanding more of, of where I want to be. So just patience, allow yourself to grow, um, allow yourself to learn, allow yourself to earn enough to keep going to the next deal. So that's probably the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Everybody is in so many different phases. I mean, from the person who's just trying to make a few extra bucks with real estate to the person who's trying to quit their job, like it never really stops. You never really like arrive, you know, because your mind just keeps growing each and every Mm -hmm. step. So you have to keep tabs on your patience for sure, because we're always seeing Instagram and people that are way, way ahead of us. Right. Which isn't always real, but yes. yeah, it's hard to, to, to look at that and not compare. Question three, our podcast is all about helping others just achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial lifestyle or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? Freedom to me is, you know, being able to do the things that I enjoy in life, but also not becoming a slave to my business, right? Like we all start in this industry, I think, because we want um, a certain lifestyle and we want to be able to do things whenever we want to do them. But I, I've seen that um, a lot of, you know, the um, the older entrepreneurs that I've been fortunate enough to be around some of them become a slave to their, to their business that they created to have a freedom, which is kind of ironic. So um, for me, it's just about building up this business and building up certain systems that allow me to, you know, have um, that free time and that, that certain lifestyle with my friends, family, and also within the business also, you know, within my day to day, enjoying my, enjoying my business. Yeah. I mean, it's not wrong to flip. It's not wrong to wholesale, but we have to be focused on the passive investments, you know, syndication or rentals or notes, whatever that means to you, because that's ultimately what's going to give you freedom because a business can be a job. A business can be your slave driver if you allow it to be. Yep. Perfect, Josh. Uh, Where can listeners get a hold of you? What do you want them to do from here? 
Um, I don't, I don't know if I want them to do anything. Just be happy. Uh, you know, go, if you're, if you're thinking about getting into real estate, do it. I'm happy to answer any questions, um, you know, for whatever that's worth. Um, you know, if they want to email me, they can reach out to me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Instagram, uh, at Telos Properties, my website, telosproperties.com. Uh, my email, Josh at telosproperties.com. So happy to, to talk with anybody about anything real estate and, um, you know, just go out there and, and do it. Perfect. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and sharing your knowledge with listeners. Thanks again, Josh. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.